You're listening to Keynotes, a Kappa Kappa Gamma podcast featuring Alumni Achievement Award recipients. Get ready to hear from five amazing women about their careers, their Kappa membership, and advice they have to offer to other women looking to make their mark on the world. I'm your host, JJ Wales, a member of Beta New Chapter at Ohio State University and a former fraternity president. I'm excited to share my conversation with these women who are from five different chapters and five different schools, but they have more in common. They are inspiring, fun, dedicated, hardworking, and unbelievably accomplished. Each has made such a significant contribution in her chosen field, has great respect and admiration for her Kappa membership, and is so willing to share her experience with us. Today, I'm talking with Marty Veneer, a member of Gamma Alpha Chapter at Kansas State University. Marty is the Director of Operations at the National Agricultural Biosecurity Center. And as she said to me regarding COVID-19, and I quote, who would have guessed a human disease outbreak would create such havoc in the food supply chain? She is also a longtime advisor to Gamma Alpha Chapter. Here's my conversation with Marty. Welcome, Marty. I'm so excited about the chance to talk with you. Today's issues in and around the coronavirus make our conversation so timely. I am sure you will provide interesting insight for all of us. Let's start by talking about your career, then talk Kappa, and then maybe some advice from you to our listening Kappas. Sound good? Sure. Great. Good. Let's get started. Everything in your background speaks to your love of animals and the interaction of animal health, human health, and food safety. Growing up on a ranch in Kansas, I'm guessing this interest started there. Did you arrive at K-State knowing you wanted to go to veterinary school? Actually, yes, I did. Growing up on a working cattle ranch, I was involved in the day-to-day activities from the time I was a young kid and knew that livestock and production and agriculture was where I wanted to be, but I also understood that I had a real drive to be involved in the science. And at the time, the natural path would have been to go to the College of Agriculture and the Department of Animal Sciences and just come out with a degree understanding production. But I wanted more than that. So about the time I was in, oh, say, middle school and early high school, I began to investigate veterinary medicine and spent some time working with our ranch veterinarian and spent some time working with other veterinarians in the nearby town. And that was very, very common at the time that veterinarians would take on students who were interested and we would assist in the clinic and mostly work in the back in the kennels, but were exposed to medicine and diagnosis and treatment. So that pretty much sealed the deal for me. And when I got to K-State, I enrolled in the pre-veterinary medicine program, which was the pre-professional program. And once you finish that program, then you apply to the veterinary school and go through their selection process. It sounds like you had it all mapped out and were ready to go as soon as you got to school. That's impressive. Lots of students don't have that kind of target that they've, and goal that they've set. So that's great. So you started your career in veterinary pharmaceutical and food safety policy. And then you moved to policy rather than direct veterinary medicine. Then you moved to Washington, D.C. with the Department of Agriculture, Food Safety, and Inspection Service and got involved in legislative affairs, which is more policy. 
Now, I'm sure that there were many steps in between, but you were instrumental in having the National Agricultural Biosecurity Center brought to K-State. It sounds like that wasn't easy to make this happen. So how were you able to do that? And did you develop some special skills along the way? Well, so JJ, you commented earlier about how it was really cool that I had a plan. So what I'm gonna say to you is that the career path that I ended up on was not as the result of a plan. (laughs) Right. I can see that. So it's funny that you say that because I I know when I was coming through high school and in college, yes, it was all about you have to have a career plan. You know, where do you want to be in five years? Where do you want to be in 10 years? What do you want your ultimate job to be, et cetera, et cetera. And that always annoyed me, frankly. And so one of the things that I'll tell people is that I didn't have a plan. Ah. I knew that I wanted to go through veterinary school and I did. And I thought I wanted to be in practice, but I got to practice and I kind of really didn't enjoy it and wasn't necessarily that good at it. And I learned that my interest actually was more in the policy world. Hmm. So I was fortunate to be able to make that lateral step to go into the policy aspects of medicine, which is why I ended up at the Animal Health Institute doing pharmaceutical policy, veterinary pharmaceutical policy, because I found that really fascinating and found that I was pretty good at it. So I ended up there at the Animal Health Institute for a number of years before I ended up at the Department of Agriculture. And that once again was not part of a plan. It was because in Washington, D.C., you have three universes that tend to intersect within policy. You have the federal government, which are the regulators. They make the policies and carry them out. You've got the legislative branch, which tends to set law. And so that gives you the larger framework. And then the regulatory agencies, you know, get down into the details to carry out that larger framework. And then you've got the private groups outside of the government and the legislature who are representing their members, whatever those members might be. And in the case of the Animal Health Institute, these were companies that manufactured veterinary pharmaceuticals and vaccines. So they need to be represented because they are the ones who are controlled by the statutes that Congress writes and by the rules and regulations that the agencies create. So you have these three parties that are coming together and always talking, hopefully collaborating but certainly having discussions about what their world is going to look like. So in the Animal Health Institute, I was clearly in that third group of the industry, and I wanted to better understand the other two pieces. So I had an opportunity to go to work at USDA, which gave me the perspective of the regulators and the bureaucracy. It was a great experience. I also learned I was a really bad bureaucrat. I was (laughs) not happy being a bureaucrat. I can understand that. Well, yeah. So once my time at USDA finished, I ended up coming back to K-State. One of the things that I do regret is that I was never able to work on the legislative side because I think that would be really fascinating and I never had that opportunity. So I missed that. So once again, that that was a plan maybe that didn't happen. Now, to get to your real question, which was getting the NBAF laboratory here, I came back to K-State, became part of a program called the National Agricultural Biosecurity Center, which is the program that I currently direct. 
this program, we got heavily involved and we're still heavily involved in looking at planning and training for animal disease response, high consequence animal disease response, and also looking at issues with respect to food crops. So as part of that program, I and my team were working in a realm that was really new at the time. And a part of that team, and once again, this goes back to the Department of Agriculture and part of their regulatory mission is that they are the folks who run all the diagnostic tests for diseases that are potentially foreign diseases that have come into the country to infect livestock. So as I'm working at NABC and we're looking at animal disease response, part of our response is understanding the mission and the functions of this USDA laboratory. The current laboratory is located on Plum Island, New York, and it is literally an island. The laboratory was built over 60, 60 years ago. So it's really old. The technology that was in place 60 years ago when the laboratory was built is now quite archaic. They've gotten to the point where they could not continue to retrofit that laboratory to keep it up to engineering and processing standards that we would need now in a containment laboratory. This was after 9-11. It was understood that this, that this laboratory needed to be replaced. And at that point in time, the laboratory was owned and managed by the Department of Homeland Security. So they created a competition for localities and entities to bid for the right to host the new laboratory which is called the National Bio and Agro Defense Facility, or NBAF, N-B-A-F. So K-State was part of that competition. I was part of the team that wrote the proposal to bring NBAF to K-State. The competition was about a three-year-long process in which we competed against, originally I think there were 39 bidders from around the country. There were certain requirements that Homeland Security wanted in the location. So we were able to meet all of those requirements, make it to the finals. At that point, then the selection team started visiting each of the sites and hearing proposals and oral arguments from each of the sites. So I was a part of that process. Eventually, Manhattan and K-State was selected as the site to host the laboratory. And the laboratory has been under construction since 2015. That's quite a journey that it took to make all that happen. I, I think I was right when asking the question about, I didn't think this was easy. Well, it took all of your skills to be able to make that happen. And congratulations that it's in the works and hopefully will be able to open soon. Well, yes, that's what we're hoping. And, and I have to say, I mean, this was not a Marty thing. I was part of a huge team of some really, really bright people who are really creative thinkers. Part of the process was that not only were we building a new building, but we had to understand what the vision was for that laboratory and the functions of the laboratory and think about how we as a university and we as a community can support that mission. And so as much as anything, that was kind of the creative part of all of this was figuring out how can we best support the mission of this laboratory? And it's interesting now because the program that I currently run, we are involved with some of the current training programs 
with respect to training scientists and workers that are going to eventually work in that laboratory. We're involved with community relations that are being built with respect to the laboratory. We're involved with understanding the laboratory's mission and how it may assist, for instance, my program in looking at uh, responding to a significant disease outbreak in livestock. Well, it's all facets of it. That's, it's just fascinating. I think, Marty, what's probably on all of our minds is the coronavirus and the involvement. I, I sense that probably the center has had some involvement. You, along with the center and the other people at the center, have had some involvement related to the coronavirus. And I'm anxious to know what that involvement has been. And I, I think others are probably interested in it as well. Well, we have been involved in the coronavirus situation here, not only directly on campus, but generally around the state. One of the skills of my center, NABC, is that we're really good at project management and program management. Given the variety of agencies and project funders that we've had, we can manage a project to death. (laughs) So when coronavirus was raising its head, and particularly in the first part of the year when we knew that the state was going to have to respond and campus was going to have to respond, my center and my team were responsible for handling all of the logistics with respect to personal protective equipment for campus and as campus could contribute to the state of Kansas. One of the first things that happened, and you all remember from media reports, that there were PPE shortages everywhere. Mm and including the state of Kansas. And so the state of Kansas Division of Emergency Management reached out to private industry, reached out to all of us at universities, knowing that we would have some PPE. And certainly the building where I work, which is a biocontainment laboratory, we do in fact have PPE. So since I uh, was familiar with the Division of Emergency Management working with them on animal disease issues, they reached out to me And so the team came together. We collected spare PPE from campus, shipped it to the state capitol to be used in the state laboratory, which was doing all the coronavirus testing at the time. Uh, Subsequently, when the state laboratory became overwhelmed, we also assisted in matching some of our faculty members who had the skills needed to go to the laboratory to assist the personnel there to help run some of the tests. And then as we got deeper and deeper into the situation, our veterinary diagnostic lab went through all of the processes to qualify as a COVID testing laboratory. And they are still providing COVID tests for the local community. So not only did the state health laboratory send samples to our veterinary diagnostic lab for COVID testing, but the laboratory is also supporting our campus health center and our local hospitals by providing COVID testing here, which reduces the burden on the state laboratory because these tests don't have to go to the state laboratory anymore. So that was something that we assisted with, and it's still ongoing. I would also say two other points. First one is that we know that coronavirus jumped from the animal world. We're still not sure what the reservoir is, but that it has jumped from the animal world which makes it a zoonotic disease. 
We have a number of researchers here on campus that are doing research on coronavirus and are assisting in development of vaccine platforms. So we do have coronavirus here in the building that we're working on. The second point I would make is that in my world of looking at agriculture and agricultural disasters, who would have thought that a human disease would create such disruptions in U.S. agriculture and the food supply chain. You think about all of the situations where we were having shortages, forget toilet paper, but shortages <laughs> of meat products. Right. And that was because folks who were working in the harvest facilities, because those are facilities where you've got a lot of people in a tight space with a lot of air flying around, they're all getting sick and can't work. Right. And so now you don't have your labor force available to provide harvest for your food supply. And so now you begin to have shortages. And there were a lot of upstream effects that I won't go into because it's great for, you know, ag nerds like me. But probably for all my Kappa friends out there, you don't really care. <laughs> um, but it's created a lot of upstream effects that we're still trying to deal with. And so we're doing an awful lot of analysis trying to understand those effects in trying to understand how we can best plan for those kinds of disruptions in the future. I know we we all were interested in where our meat was going to come from and where we were going to be able to find toilet paper. That was that was a big deal. Marty, I, I also love your quote, and you said, and I quote, critical information at the ready, what works and how. Empower the nation's first responders with knowledge, skills, and the capabilities to act, end quote. I know from reading about how qualified you are for this award, there is a natural relationship between the center and maybe this new facility coming in with the intelligence community and maybe through the coronavirus and the work that the center's been doing there, there is this connection between what you're doing and the intelligence community. Can you share with us a little bit about that and what that relationship is and how it's kind of worked itself out through COVID-19? Sure. So to be clear, when we're talking about the intelligence community, we're we're talking about agencies like the CIA, NSA, DIA, all of these groups that work in a classified realm. I've been part of a team here in Kansas through our Intelligence Fusion Center that looks at bio threats. And the team is, I think at this point, 10 years old, at least. So I can tell you, when you heard reports in the media about coronavirus and oh my God, it shouldn't have been a surprise because the intelligence community was watching it from the very beginning, I can tell you that that's true. It wasn't a surprise that it got here. I think the surprise was the virulence of it. Mm -hmm. And that's a discussion for another day. But with respect to the intelligence community, one of the beauties of the United States is that despite what some people think, we really do have a pretty open and transparent society and that our government and our regulators and folks in animal health really are open about the threats and the risks to this country and are really open about disease situations that we have in this country. Now, what the intelligence community does is it, it's forever looking over the horizon. 
It wants to know what's coming. It wants to know what are, what are the things out there around the world that may be a threat to the United States. And they take that information and then other smart people do a risk assessment. The risk is sort of like, what's the likelihood? And so if I can use an example, it's like a meteor hitting the earth. We know meteors hitting the earth are a threat, but what's the risk? What's the likelihood of that? So the intelligence community is forever looking over the horizon. And the intelligence community does look at things like disease instances, both in humans and in animals. And that's where we in Kansas come into play because agriculture is so important to us here and livestock agriculture is so important to us here that we particularly pay attention to reports and information that may talk about particular diseases or disease states around the world. And as much as anything, it gives us a head start to understand what we might need to do to prepare mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, or what we might need to do to defend against the introduction of a particular disease into the United States. It keeps us a step ahead, hopefully. It does. It keeps us a step ahead. And we have to recognize that there are adversaries out there who want to do us harm. I will say, though, that my focus the focus of my team and the focus of most people who are dealing with concerns about high consequence animal disease, we know that mother nature is likely to present us with a larger risk than any of our adversaries. While we don't ignore adversaries, we recognize that they are probably a very small part of what we need to prepare for. Good, interesting. I'm very sensitive to everyone's outlook on how the virus is impacting our lives. Marty, is there anything else you'd like us to know about the virus and what the center is doing? Sort of a final thought on this subject? Well, this virus has clearly had a tremendous impact on our lives here in the U.S. and lives of people all over the world. We will get through this. The virus is real. The disease is real. We have to understand that there is a certain amount of drama involved, and that's okay. But I want people to trust that the pharmaceutical and vaccine industry is working very hard to come up with treatments and vaccines. These things take time, and we're seeing that now. We will have a vaccine or vaccines the supply in the beginning will be limited, and so the people who are very smart about epidemiology are going to talk about which populations need to be the first ones to be vaccinated to get to, and I will use this term, herd immunity. That term has been disparaged lately, and I think that's unfortunate because herd immunity is a real thing. The debate is not about reaching it. The debate is how do we get there? That's the real debate. We have to have herd immunity to protect our population against further outbreaks of the disease. That's, you know, when we vaccinated against smallpox, the reason we don't have smallpox anymore is because of herd immunity. The reason that measles and mumps are not the threat they used to be when I was a little kid is because we have herd immunity. Every person who's infected and recovered is also part of herd immunity, but certainly a far better way to achieve herd immunity is through either vaccination, which would be the preferred strategy, or certainly 
having folks follow the recommendations of health officials to wear masks, to engage in some distancing, use good hand hygiene. And at that point, we slow the spread of the virus, which buys us time for the vaccines to come online so that we can vaccinate people and and get to herd immunity. Well, that's good information for all of us. We're being really sciencey here today. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll move on. Let's 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 talk Kappa now. That's a favorite subject of both you and me. So let's do that. You are a totally committed advisor to your K State chapter. Twenty plus years as an advisor and a long time recruitment advisor. What is there about recruitment that makes you come back year after year? Well, honestly, it, it was a way to sort of vicariously relive my college days at the Kappa House. It was just so much fun to be back with the chapter and to, in essence, live their lives with them for that week, which, as everybody remembers, is a pretty stressful week. The other part of it was when I was serving as recruitment advisor, we moved from literally paper tabulation to now the RFID method where you're doing tabulation with the clickers that is instantly tabulated on the computer. So I lived through all of that. So I started in the dark ages and ended up in basically the current time. So for me, um, and this is kind of a theme, I guess, managing the chapter through recruitment became kind of a problem-solving exercise. So if you, and I've just sort of had this flash, which is really creepy, this is not unlike planning for a disease outbreak. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you go through the incident and you finish and then you look at it and you go, okay, what worked well and what didn't work well? And let's fix the things that didn't work well. And one of the things that I learned early on, you know, I could identify a lot of things that needed to be improved in how the chapter operated recruitment. But I also learned, given the population I was working with of of very young women, I could only ask them to make about one change a year. If I asked for more than that, it just became too stressful for them to manage on top of just the general stress of recruitment. That kind of kept me coming back. How can we make this process better? Frankly, how can we make it easier so it's less stressful on all of us? Because none of us like staying up till three o'clock in the morning. And then as advisor, you know, I have the alumni come in who are doing the tabulations and then I have to construct, you know, the invitation list. And so it's sort of like it was, it was hell week. And I'm, I'm thinking, I don't, you know, this is sort of not fun. How, how can I make this better so that it's easier on all of us? And so that, that became part of it too. Not only was it just the sisterhood and being with the young women, but it was also how can I, how can we work on this process so that it becomes less stressful, and a more pleasant process for everyone. Well, you are absolutely the perfect advisor. That is the best answer in terms of the relationship that you built with the chapter and the individual members, I'm sure, as well as being able to step back and say, there are ways that we can improve upon this and let's work on those. That's that's great, Marty. Wonderful. I know that the chapter and the house have a very special place in your heart because you have the vision, or as you've been described, and I quote, the mind of a scientist, the leadership of a collaborator, and the heart of a kappa, end quote. You help found and serve as the president of the Fairchild Terrace Scholarship Foundation. 
share with us some of the scholarship programs offered by the foundation, and you might explain to people why the name of the foundation is the Fairfield Terrace Scholarship Foundation. I know why, but I bet there are a lot of people out there who have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, the foundation has that name because the Kappa House address is 517 Fairchild Terrace in Manhattan. So we wanted to create this local foundation for Gamma Alpha Chapter. And frankly, my inspiration for that was a friend of mine from the fraternity world who was a chapter advisor for the ATO house here in Manhattan. And they had created their own local foundation and were doing tremendous things with it. Now, you know, we we never quite matched their level of sophistication or their level of funding or activity, but they were a terrific model. Basically, Fairchild Terrace, we basically have two programs. Uh, one is a scholarship program that rewards scholarship in the chapter. And then we also have a need-based scholarship, so an emergency needs type of situation. I mean, we're still a relatively small foundation, but the lovely thing is, of course, anyone can contribute to the Fairchild Terrace Foundation. And our most important scholarship has been basically rewarding academic achievement. And so it's not anything sophisticated at all. We reward Kappas with a, with a small scholarship if they receive a grade point average of 3.0 or above. Uh-huh. Okay, good. So we get to see the scholarship report. Obviously, we don't get the personally identifying information necessarily, but we get to see which members have achieved a GPA of above 3.0, and we reward them at various levels, at 3, at three, three five, and at 4 point. We reward them, you know, with a small scholarship. And basically, it's just a reward. It's an incentive to do well. Then our need-based scholarship is exactly that. It's very simple. If we have a member with an extraordinary need, not unlike, you know, the extraordinary needs that CABA Foundation, the criteria that they use for extraordinary needs, we have much the same criteria, but it's just local. And so if we have a member that has an extraordinary need, they can apply through the scholarship chair at the house, which comes to us on the board, and then we grant what we can to to help them. It was just a way of being able to take care of ourselves locally. That's wonderful. And it touches so many individual kappas that way, too. And the incentive, as well as the need-based, is it reaches so many more by doing it that way. That's, that's wonderful. But I know that you have extended your love for Kappa beyond just Gamma Alpha Chapter to the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation by issuing a challenge gift last year to kick off our 150th birthday. The good news, we met the challenge. But coming from you, I think it's important to ask, what was the inspiration for you to make this wonderful gift? I have to say that it goes back to the event that I attended that was hosted by the foundation down in Texas. It was sort of a focus group kind of session. And I have to say, you know, I had not really had much contact at all with the Kappa Foundation. But I I have to say, I was really impressed at that focus group session with A, the passion of the women who were involved and who were on the foundation board with their skills and knowledge you had a lot of ladies there who who have been involved in philanthropy and in very sophisticated philanthropy outside of Kappa. And so I was impressed that the philanthropic skill 
of the foundation was much greater than I had anticipated or that I was aware of. Knowing that there were women involved who understand philanthropy, who understand in philanthropy, uh, philanthropy is a business and philanthropy is an art. And knowing that there were women involved who understood those things and were very good at those things and had a vision and a mission for the foundation made it pretty easy. Really, the only thing I knew about the foundation at that point was like Rose McGill. And, it, and in my mind, it wasn't very high profile. It was, it was just a nice little thing. But to go to this event and, and see and understand and be aware of the knowledge that these women had about the science and the art of philanthropy and understanding how to approach donors and understanding how to create, you know, a case statement and how to create a mission for the foundation was really impressive to me. At that session was where I bonded with MJ Christ. And so we stayed in contact for a while. And she, being a good philanthropist and understanding the art and science of philanthropy, you know, just kind of kept pressing me and pressing me and pressing me. And then we met in Kansas City with Lindsay Gale. And, and that was the ask. I've been around philanthropy long enough that I knew it was coming. <laughs> but it was very easy to say yes. That's wonderful. I think that we are, as an organization, not only the fraternity, but the foundation, we are gifted with women who are of the highest caliber and with the greatest amount of experience, and they bring that to us. And we are indeed fortunate to have those people be a part of, of Kappa Kappa Gamma. You being one of them also, Marty, thank you so much. I'm hoping this next piece will be really fun. I'm going to ask you to finish a statement by filling in the blank. And I'm going to do this with all of the Achievement Award recipients that we do the podcast with, because I think everybody's going to think this is kind of a fun thing to do. At least I hope so. But anyway, I'll read part of the statement and then you fill in the blank, okay? Okay. All right. The first one is, the fun in my job is... The fun in my job is solving problems and making a difference. Oh, good. Okay, great. Number two, more women should... This is going to be a kind of a longer answer. And what I'm about to say, I please, I don't want anyone to be offended. But I'm going to say more women should quit being girly. <laughs> okay. Women are very strong and have a lot of things to contribute. And we, in fact, do have a different way of operating than men do. And that's okay. And in a lot of cases, it's a better way of operating. And I just wish women would stand up and take their strength and their power and own it and stop worrying about what other people think of them for doing that. Mm -hmm. Good good advice. Good advice. And that goes for our listening Kappas who are undergraduates as well as alumni. Oh, that's terrific. Absolutely. Number three, what is more important to you today than it was 10 years ago? Okay, this is really hard for me. I think, so this is kind of selfish. I'm going to say taking care of myself. That's perfectly fine. Is more important to me now than it was 10 years ago. New and different perspectives as we go through different phases in our lives. That's, that's great. Number four, last one. Someday I'll what? Two things. 
someday I'll sail around the world. Ooh, I love it. Cruise around the world, I guess. (laughs) And someday I'll own a horse that wins a national championship. Wow, that's quite a goal. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to ask you next... What about your hobbies? What kind of hobbies you have? What kind of diversions or distractions you have? We we know busy women need these things. And one of the things I was thinking is maybe you still like to ride your horses. Um, I do. I know I'm going to get a text from MJ at any moment after she hears this. But, you know, part of the challenge was uh, in the video, you saw my boyfriend, Six Gun, and um, he's spectacular. He is the basis for my current breeding program. And so I'm going to become more and more involved in breeding horses and breeding quarter horses. And I have two young horses in training that I hope that I can get to see and ride soon. Another young one coming up. I love, 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 love actually kind of being a horse midwife. I've delivered four of the six babies that my personal mare has had. So that is something that my, you know, my friends will tell you that when we get into the early spring of the year, kind of the, you know, February, March timeframe, I start to lose my mind because all I'm thinking about is, you know, a pregnant mare and getting ready to deliver her baby and all that kind of stuff. So there's that. I have some property here in Manhattan and I rent pastures out to graze cattle. So I generally have cattle most all the time. And that's fun to go ride through the cattle or just go walk out in the pasture and and see the cattle. K-State sports are a big deal for me. Fortunately, now that I'm kind of trying to dial back a little bit, I'm I'm starting to read a lot more, which is good. That's the sort of thing that really kind of quiets me down. And so I'm I'm doing more of that. That's that's kind of where I'm at right now. It's horses, horses, football, basketball and books. This sounds like a, a good amount of diversions and distractions from the from the busy life that you lead, which is great. That's wonderful. You know, every career in life has its ups and downs. One piece of advice that you have from maybe the highs and lows that you've experienced in your life. Okay. Um, I don't know that we have enough time to go through all of those lessons. Oh, <laughs> okay. Pick one. I'll try to condense that a little bit. So, yeah, I'm... I've had a few bumps and bruises along the way and, uh, you know, some really terrific successes too. Be proud of your successes. And it's easy to say that. Everybody's going to say that. Be proud of your successes. I would also say, do not be afraid to make a mistake. Do not be afraid to be wrong. I've talked to groups about leadership and everybody goes through a leadership program and, and they're often very similar, and mine's sort of Marty's Leadership 2.0, which is a variety of things like you're not always the smartest person in the room. You don't always need to be in charge. You're not always right. Be okay with all of that. And in fact, it probably makes you a better leader. If you're in a situation where you're not the smartest person in the room because leadership programs want you to believe that you are, that you have the best idea, no, you don't always have the best idea. And be okay with that. And it makes you a better leader because then it makes you pay attention to what other people are saying and thinking and causes you to be very analytical in your thinking and assess your idea versus somebody else's without the emotion and the ego attached to the fact that it's your idea versus somebody else. You can look at the ideas in the abstract and analyze them and figure out which one is the best idea. So 
be okay with that and own that. Be okay with making a mistake. There aren't many mistakes that are permanent. So recognize that and be okay with making a mistake. And for God's sake, admit that you made the mistake. Mm -hmm. If you're wrong about something, admit that you're wrong. Say you're sorry and then move on. It's not a moral failure. So those are, those are a lot of the lessons that I've learned. That's really good advice. And I love the one about mistakes aren't permanent. Obviously, the old statement about we learn from our mistakes is so true. Absolutely. Good, good advice, Marty. That's wonderful. Thank you. In closing, Oprah describes her friendship with Gail King as one based on shared values, pride and joy, building dreams, standing in the gap, cheering, supporting, speaking the truth, being the truth, respect and regard. Friendships based on these attributes will create relationships which are solid, timeless, forever. Marty, you epitomize these attributes in what you do every day. You are always thinking and doing for the greater good. Your concern and empathy for others is so evident. Kappa Kappa Gamma is so grateful to you and so proud to call you a Kappa sister. Thank you so much for all you've accomplished, for your willingness to share some of yourself with us, and for accepting the challenge to dream boldly and live fully. Thank you, JJ. Thanks for listening to the Keynotes Podcast, a series of conversations with Kappas who dream boldly and live fully. Want more from Kappas Leading the Way? Follow Kappa Kappa Gamma on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Subscribe to Keynotes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you a fan of Kappa Podcasts? Then we'd love to hear from you. We'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating, review, or recommendation. These podcasts were made possible with the help of Beth Black, Lindsay Gale, Kaya Lim, and Susanna Tide, who assisted in scheduling the guests. Kristen Sanjeed and Maddie Sykes, who did the marketing, and Ryan Gannon and Marla Williams for their tech support. A special thank you to Ryan for his production expertise and for producing all five podcasts. It has been my pleasure to host the conversations with these extraordinary women. Mm-hmm.